0: following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. The Mythgard Academy. Happy New Year, everyone. It is 2021 today. Well, not today. Today is our first day of class in which it's 2021. And so it's welcome back for the new year to the Mythgard Academy. Um, Yeah, yeah, thanks. uh, My background here, I join you uh, from the, well, wherever it is, exactly, just near the gates of Dees. Uh, We've got hanging out with the Haresiarchs back here. Uh, So there we go. Um, (laughs) I try try to stay, you know, uh, regional here in our... uh, Uh, in our travels through hell. Um, And uh, tonight is going to be kind of interesting because we're going to finally get to the part of hell where actually snowballs would have a challenge, right? I mean, so far, one of the things I know that struck me when I read uh, Inferno for the first time was, where's all the fire? Uh, I mean, like, it's the majority of hell actually is really reasonably temperate. Um, uh, I, flames, I was expecting more flames, had to admit I was expecting more flames. Um, so, um, we're, um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Stephen is wondering if our, uh, our timing in both starting and also resuming Inferno has been a little too perfect. Uh, you know, I hear you, I understand. Um, uh <laughs> what can I do? I don't I don't control external events. Uh but uh here we are. <laughs> here we are. Um uh <laughs> Jocelyn thinks that's a good t-shirt idea <laughs> for Midgard. Hell, it's really temperate. Um yeah, yeah. Um uh, Serena, well, thank you. I, I, I I'd, I'd like to think external events would be better if I did control them, but then again, there's probably a reason I don't. Uh, I think um, uh, it's possible that uh, I don't know. I, I hold out, I hold out a hope that external events are in better hands than mine. Uh, but anyway, um, okay. So uh, exactly Tarlonia, we're chilling in the suburbs of Dis. That's uh, exactly where we've been here for the last few weeks. Um but um uh but anyway, so good to be back with everybody. I was uh, I hope everybody had a good couple weeks off for the holidays and uh and now we Uh, resume the what because I've been conditioned living in the world of academia for a long time once the calendar turns around to January I'm uh, conditioned to think of this as the beginning of the spring which seems wholly optimistic uh, from a purely seasonal standpoint Uh, but um, that's okay looking in looking forward to a a nice long cold winter uh, here spending the rest of our time together uh, discussing hell so um uh, yeah, well it's true. I'm sure you haven't had so much winter down there yet in Texas, Serena, but uh up here we're doing we're doing f- we're doing fine on the winter front. Um so uh and it is true. We're past the solstice, so yeah, spring is spring is coming, no question. Um <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, let us get back into things. I want to see if we can get as far as centaurs today. That's my goal. Uh, is to uh, get to centaurs. Oh, I forgot to point out. Gerald had mentioned right before class started. He said that uh, uh, over uh, New Year's he was listening to the, uh, the the our discussion of Dune again from several years back, and was wondering if if I explain what is and what is not allegory in every class, or does it just seem that way? Yeah. Uh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it's possible. It's, and, and... Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I think perhaps I'm guilty of Not every single class, but it comes up. It comes up. Um, and one of the reasons... Well, and, and it's possible... It's possible that I'm oversensitive to this uh, because I spent uh, some of my, like, teenage years and uh, a few more of my earlier collegiate years trying to explain to my family that, like, symbolism does not equal allegory. I um, used to get in big fights about this. Relating to Narnia, specifically, I tried and tried to explain about how Narnia... Why Narnia is not an allegory. Uh, uh, to Anyway, whatever. Um, but... Um, The point is, it's something that I have found generally... Modern audiences just aren't practiced about allegory. Like, in the the Middle Ages, we love allegory. Allegory is is both a wonderful way of reading and a wonderful way of writing. Um, Allegory was, like, one of the great parlor games of the Middle Ages, you know? Uh, So... um, It's... uh, But it's just... It's something that modern people... (laughs) Well, I find I generally have to explain stuff just to make sure that everybody's on the same page because there are a lot of people who tend to, um, uh, who tend to kind of either not think allegorically at all, um, and therefore kind of need to be introduced to the concept of reading things allegorically. Or again, like I was saying, as a problem I had with my own relatives, um, that, uh, I, you know, to, uh, Kind of take anything that is in any way sort of symbolic uh or um uh, I don't know almost even mythic and and to sort of say oh so yeah, that's that that's allegory um so anyway it's um it's complicated, but um <laughs> Stephen is wondering if maybe explaining allegory versus symbolism was a sin, and now I'm doomed to do so <laughs> ever more perfectly perpetually maybe. Maybe, Stephen. I'm not sure if, uh, you know, being locked in this cycle (laughs) class after class is what hell or what heaven looks like for a professor. You know, it really, it kind of could be either way, honestly. Uh, so (laughs) I guess, I guess, uh, I guess we'll have to see. Um, and Serena says, if it's a sin, I'm guilty of it. No question. No question. I'm not going to be able to get off on that one. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, oh, Jocelyn, yeah, great. Jocelyn said she's going to do the Dune class uh, uh, before seeing the new movie. Um, Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to seeing the movie, uh, the new movie. That'll be fun. Um, Okay, but anyway. All right, (laughs) let us us jump back into the text, because we had just finally gotten inside the Gates of Hell. So you remember that uh, several weeks back when we last met, uh, we were discussing... Virgil's failure right when Virgil gets turned back at the gate and the two of them end up awkwardly kind of shuffling their feet uh, and making awkward conversation while they're waiting to be rescued by the angelic being who finally comes across well sort of walks on top of uh, the swamp right the swamp of decent uh, the swamps of the sticks rather uh, and opens the door for them and um, and we were talking about how you know what seems to be, and it seems to me anyway, to be a pretty clear correlation between the sort of failing in purpose of Virgil, right? In that is like he fails to he's supposed to guide Dante down and he fails, right? He can't get through the gates. Um, but at the same time, he uh, he's just what seems done, what seems like a failure morally in basically egging Dante on to commit the very sin that the people around him are being punished for committing. Uh, And that just doesn't seem like it's just not a good look uh, for Virgil. And then, of course, in that context, while they're passing time waiting to be rescued, uh, you know, Virgil tells this this sketchy story about how he was made the... Errand boy of, or the errand shade rather, um, you know of a sketchy pagan necromancer. So, you know, it's um, it's it's these three things in a row which kind of reduce Virgil to some extent, and and it's interesting to me that I I think what we'll see uh, in these next few um, uh, in these next few sessions. Uh, is that um, we, we don't get any obvious after, like fallout from that. Um, I don't detect, I don't know if you did. Uh, I don't detect any alteration really uh, in Dante's relationship with Virgil um, <clears throat> or sort of Virgil's status. But I'm still just kind of interested to sort of bank it, right? And we'll see if it kind of pays off at some point later on. It might not be until after the end of Inferno, of course, conceivably. Um, we're going to have Virgil again in the Purgatorio. So, um, uh, you know, the, the, in, in in only discussing Inferno here, we're only discussing sort of half of the Dante and Virgil story uh, in the Commedia. But anyway... Um, Yeah, Stephen is saying that reason alone isn't enough to guide, uh, you know, people past all sin. Dante needs more directly heavenly help. And Stephen, it's certainly true that um, it is, uh, you know, it is the direct call and the authority from heaven, which has certainly enabled this whole thing in the first place. Right. Um, You know, that's been uh, uh, that's been certainly a primary emphasis. Um, uh, So, yeah, I mean allegorically speaking does you know is is virgil i think he's associated with reason i'd have a hard time just equating him with reason um i mean i would think if his guide were to be reason in an allegorical sense right if we're having sort of the soul guided by reason through the first stages and then you know brought to divine enlightenment, uh, that is in the, in the, you know, in the person and the guidance of Beatrice, who's going to guide him through Paradiso. Um, that, uh, I mean, it's possible of course, that Virgil represents that. Virgil is certainly associated with reason in some ways. Um, but, um, but I think also in a sense he's Virgil himself as the poet is more than just a reasoner, right? Um, so I'm not sure that, that but, but, but anyway, Stephen, I do think that that's a part of it. I do think that, that, that that's a part of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, so let's, uh, once we get inside the gates, though, whom do we meet? For flames were scattered through the tombs, and these had kindled all of them to glowing heat. No artisan could ask for hotter iron. The lid of every tomb was lifted up. And from each tomb such sorry cries arose, as could come only from the sad and hurt. And I, master, who can these people be, who buried in great chests of stone like these must speak by way of sighs in agony? And he to me, here are arch-heretics, and those who follow them, from every sect. Those tombs are much more crowded than you think. Here, like has been in sepulchred with like. Some monuments are heeded more, some less." And then he turned around and to his right, and we passed between the torments and the high walls. Okay, so first we get the landscape, right? We get the um, we get the the description, and this is in the very end of Canto Nine. So this is the same canto. The angels just opened the gate, and they've gone through the gate. Um, so this isn't even in, you know, sort of the canto that they're spending here in this area proper, which is canto 10 um, is still the end of canto 9 Um, so there are tombs individual tombs with the doors open so let's just start with that tombs with the doors open what does tombs with the doors open make you think, I mean it's a little odd isn't it in some ways, right tombs in hell um Burial places. I mean, like, we're kind of past that, right? We've 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 finished that stage already, right? By the time uh, we get down here, um, but yeah, certainly, it's the open door of the tomb that seems most characteristic, right? Um, the lid of every tomb was lifted up. Uh, you know, a, an open tomb uh, is. Certainly does to me suggest um, resurrection, uh, like several people uh, are are mentioning. Absolutely, I mean that's it's one of the the sort of symbols of it, right? Um, William uh, Coley is saying is you know like, could these be the tombs of the patriarchs who were harrowed? That is, you know, who were uh, taken up with Christ when he uh, cleaned out the joint on holy Saturday. Um, Well, no, I mean, these aren't, uh, right? They wouldn't have been here, um, most likely. No, certainly not. Uh, Those who are here are already damned. Everyone who was hanging out and waiting for Jesus to come and take them away uh, was up in in limbo. Um, Plato would have gotten to... Sorry, not Plato. Plato, yes, would have gotten to meet many of them. Um, uh, But uh, Virgil, I meant, would have gotten to meet many of them, right, briefly, uh, as he did... Uh, uh, you know, he was uh, uh, he was dead prior to, uh, I mean, as he said, he died just a few years before uh, the big event, right, the harrowing of hell. So, um. okay, so, why are heretics what have all these open tombs? Now, the mechanism the, the tombs themselves are mechanisms, right and there are a few things that are going on here. on the one hand they're, they're containers, we're told, right there's uh, I mean he uh, Virgil's like, who are these people right that are buried in these tombs?" Um, and he says, hey there are more people in each one of those than you think right they're, they're, uh, they're apparently crammed right in there, right okay, so there's a whole bunch of people in each tomb. So they're storage receptacles, right? They're also mechanisms of torment because they're hot, right? They're heated. So the people who are in them are burning, um, you know, they're being sort of roasted inside the tombs. And we're told that uh, as he says, uh, where is it? Um, right. Some monuments are heated more, some less. So they're gradations. Right, so it, uh, it also, that's another way in which they're differentiated. So they're kind of sorted uh, in more than one way, right? And it. Arch heretics and those who follow them from every sect. Like has been in with like, Virgil tells us. Uh, so presumably the different heresies are kind of, they're sorted, right? All into different tombs. Uh, you've got your. You know, you've got your, 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 you know, your Arians over there, and you've got your uh, you know, Gnostics over there. And then over here, you've got <clears throat> the ones who are most prominent, and then ones with whom Dante spends most of his time interacting, which are the Epicureans. As apparently Epicureanism uh, was a hot thing in Florence uh, at around that time. So it was, uh, it was a very trendy heresy of the time, and that's where Dante meets his contemporaries there. Um, Good. Now, David is, of course, recalling that uh, burning, of course, burning at the stake is, uh, uh, you know, the sort of the worldly consequence, right, of heresy. Um, Yeah, though, I guess, David, that's exactly it's the contrast with that, that um, sort of surprises me in a sense. Um, I don't know how to explain it it has heat in common right i mean yes with being burned at the stake but but not very much else i think in fact in so many other ways uh it um uh it seems very significantly different Uh, First of all, you have all these people who are stored and stored away from sight. Uh, Being burned at the stake is a public display on purpose, right? Um, This is sort of the opposite of that. Um, Yeah, Jameson says it's like the tombs are the heresies themselves. I rather like that, Jameson. That seems to me to work pretty well. And that would explain, of course, why some are heated more and some less, right? It's not merely a, a kind of external um you know like uh, as if there's some kind of uh, you know heating guide right like uh, in case of arianism turn you know heat up to x amount but rather it's like the intrinsic heat right uh the uh, the the this, the very nature of that particular heresy, right? Of that particular tomb. So identifying the tombs themselves. So the tombs are all separate tombs. So having gone to the grave, they find themselves in graves again, graves within graves. The heresies are themselves graves inside of death itself, Um, which is... uh, which is interesting. Stephen, I don't see it. Hmm... I don't see any indication of fire, not in the sense of flames. Uh, oh, it says flames are scattered through the tombs. Yeah, so there's fire around the tombs, not in the tombs. The tombs themselves are heated by the flames, right? Uh, so they're glowing with heat, the tombs, uh, but they don't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be fire inside the tombs. So it's not like they're, they're burning uh inside the tomb, so again it's it's similar to being burned at the stake, but almost inverted from it uh, right like everything else is on fire except uh in the tombs um yeah yeah um, yeah, it's. Jameson says uh, it's like a reversal of resurrection because they explicitly were alive or saved, but they crawled back into their spiritual death. Um, Hmm. Maybe, maybe. We're also told that they're waiting for the. Re- I mean, all of them are waiting for the resurrection, right? Everyone is waiting for the resurrection. That is the resurrection of the body at the end. Um, and when that happens, I think the gate, the doors are going to be closed, right? They're open until then. Um, so it's explicitly the opening of the doors of the tombs is explicitly linked to the resurrection. But that is an inversion, an explicit inversion, Jameson, right? Um. Now, Tim, I like that idea that heresy perverts the Christian hope of resurrection. So it leads to a permanent tomb so that after death, in- <clears throat> instead of finding the new life and the resurrection, uh, uh, you know, the resurrection of the spirit that 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 Christianity teaches, you have instead just a permanent tomb. Right. You uh, you 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 merely abide uh, in your tomb. Um Yeah, I think I can get behind that. Um, yeah, Bruce adds that, of course, after the resurrection, there won't be any more heretics to add, so the tombs can be permanently closed. Um, they're still they're still they're still open for new residents uh, right now. Um, yes, yes. Um, I don't they they do pop up, right to speak to Dante and Virgil. So it's possible to do that. I don't think they can leave uh, entirely. Um, But, um, yeah, so I'm trying to think of patterns here. Again, the reason I'm wanting to focus so much on the punishment is I'm trying to understand. And this one is, the hardest thing about this for me is to understand, because the sin is different, right? It's very different. Um, We've seen... We've seen gluttony, We've seen Lust. We've seen... Not in that order. Uh, we've seen Avarice expressed in a couple different ways. We've seen Wrath. Um, now we're getting Heresy, which is... different. Uh, different in its quality. And so what I'm... and. What do I mean by that? It's not only different before we were talking about diverging from the seven deadly sins, right? Um, here, we're not only diverging from the seven deadly sins, we're on a completely different sort of rationale, right? Um It's a a sort of... Is it fair to call it a purely spiritual sin? I'm not sure if that has much meaning, that phrase, applied in this way. But I wonder if you see what I mean. Um. Other sins that we've seen are about... Hmm... Um, relationship with normal feelings and actions, right, which are askew. Um, I mean, food is not bad and the desire for food isn't bad. Um, Sex isn't bad and the desire for sex isn't bad. We had lots of fights about that in the Middle Ages, but... Nevertheless, most people would agree uh, that, though some differ on that, Uh, that one that would have been a more controversial statement. But still, I mean, uh, the marriage bed is undefiled, so uh, that still is okay. Um, The uh, you know money again. That notice it's only the prodigal and the and the miserly that we saw. Um, You know, so there the very fact that we have the misers and the prodigal there in the circle of avarice suggests that there is an appropriate relationship with money, right. That you can have that'll keep you out of that problem. Um, <clears throat> heresy is different, right. Right. It's a different kind of thing entirely than how you interact with or act towards, you know, these kind, you know, everybody feels anger sometimes. Everybody feels desire. Everybody feels hungry. Right. Um, but there are right and wrong ways to deal with that. And there are appropriate and inappropriate, you know, occasions for those things. Um, uh they can be excessive, or they can be, you know, they can be on one side of a, a spectrum of excess or the other, right? Like miserliness and prodigality. Um, or they can be appropriate or inappropriate, right? Like even a very modest and uh, shame faced sexual desire for somebody else's wife, uh, is not a good thing, right? It doesn't matter how temperate you are, uh, about your sexual desire for somebody else's wife. It's still a bad idea. Um, uh, but so again, whether you're thinking about this from an Aristotelian standpoint or you're thinking about this from a more, uh, from a more Augustinian standpoint, um, it's still about like how you relate to these particular kinds of desires. Um, Yeah. As Serena says, there's no correct way to commit heresy or any correct degree. Yeah, exactly. That's that is one way in which this is different. And and even wrath. Right. Even the kind of anger uh, that was being shown. It's it's there could be, in fact, I think um, sort of appropriate directions and appropriate inappropriate measures and and me- for that kind of thing. Right. We know this because of Jesus's thing with the money changers, right? You know, wrath was, uh, 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 you know, Jesus was without sin, and yet, uh, still, uh, whipped the money changers out of the temple. So, again, even wrath, that's there can be a good, uh, a good way there, um, but um. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that is one way, Serena, in which heresy differs from the other sins. Um, Let's see, Bruce, let me come back to your point here. Um, Right. Before the break, you suggested that the sins outside of Dias... We're against ourselves and others, but the sins past the gates are against God. Well, I mean, the heresy thing certainly seems to start things off on that foot, right? Um, That it becomes much more directly about people's relationship with God, right? Um, If you... Okay, but but as we're going to see, hopefully even tonight, as we're going to see, uh, people are, I mean, violent against other people, like robbers and murderers are down there inside the gates of D's. Um And sure, you could say that that's a sin against God, but so too could you say that about lust or wrath or any of you know, the other sins. I mean... Um, so, I don't think it... I don't think that's quite... It doesn't quite work that way, I think. It's not a complete description. But, um... Now, Jameson, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, that heresy is also about your relationship with the church. Yes. Um, but... I mean, look, Dante's relationship with the church is complicated, right? You know, I mean, like, I I definitely think that, you know, like Dante and Roman Catholicism, it's complicated, right? I mean, sure, he has his problems with the Pope and the Pope is des- defining Catholic doctrine. And so when the Pope says you're wrong, you're not OK with the church. Um, but yet... Dante's not going to challenge the church. He is going to say that a whole bunch of popes are on the wrong side of it, right? Are themselves either heretics or guilty of many other sins, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. I um, I don't think that Dante is ever going to challenge the idea of the eternal church. Like there is an eternal truth and the church has God's truth. Um, The bad popes, of which, as we will see, there are many and have been many, um, they don't compromise God's church. They just show themselves to be outside it, in fact, even though to worldly eyes, they appeared to be at the very heart of it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Stephen says, think of the contrast between the heretics and the pagans. The pagans were merely ignorant while the heretics knew part of the truth and therefore were more responsible for their wrong beliefs. Um, Right, and you're thinking about the parable of the talents, right? Uh, that uh, um, unto whomsoever much is given, much shall be, shall be required. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And Michael also points out about the how heretics deliberately twist the truth as well. Um, yes, yes. That would be the... Per- and leading, um, leading others. I mean, that's again, it's one of the reasons for the sorting here, right, into the different tombs. Um, it's also almost like, and Jameson, I'm kind of coming back to what you were saying about the f- imagining the tombs themselves as a kind of physical embodiment of the heresies themselves, right? The um, when a new heresiarch comes along and starts a new heresy and they make a new tomb and it makes a new tomb in hell and he's the first one to go there. Right. Um, but it's, it's, the door is open, right. it's like an open invitation, uh, for others who follow along behind him to join him. And that's, you know, what we see, um, that's what we see happening. Right. And that's, um, and here again, I'm thinking, Jameson, about your, your point about the kind of reverse resurrection, right. That it's, uh, um, I can't help but think about, you know, Jesus saying in the New Testament, you know, in the Gospels, you know, follow me and I shall give you the living water. Right. Follow me and I shall, uh, you know, lead you to uh, uh, to, you know, to, to 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 have life and to have it more abundantly. And that Dante seems to be suggesting here that the message of the heretics, all of them, no matter even if they're completely contradictory heresies, all of them are basically saying, Follow me, and I shall lead you to living death. Right? Death within death. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes. Now, David, I agree that heretics aren't deliberately erroneous. They honestly believe their ideas. Yes, exactly. No, no, I don't mean to suggest that. That they're, uh, like, just setting out to deceive other people out of malice. For one thing, if they were, they wouldn't be here. They would be down a little bit lower, presumably. Um, but, um, yeah, as I don't think malice is exactly what these people are being punished for, exactly. Um, well, we'll we'll see a little bit more as we go forward, uh, but uh, maybe that's enough to sort of start off with. O highest virtue, you who lead me through these circles of transgression, at your will, do speak to me and satisfy my longings. Can those who lie within the sepulchres be seen? The lids, in fact, have all been lifted. No guardian is watching over them. Dante points out the interesting, (laughs) or sort of implicitly asks the interesting question, why don't they get away? I mean, like, the door's open, right? And that would seem to me to be part of the, uh, part of the punishment, right? Anyway, and he to me, they'll all be shuttered up when they return here from Jehoshaphat, together with the flesh they left above. So after the resurrection of the body, up in uh, which is going to take place in a particular spot up in Israel, uh, then they'll return uh, uh, together with the flesh they left above. Within this region is the cemetery of Epicurus and his followers. All those who say the soul dies with the body, that's the particular region that they're in here, in the particular tomb uh, that they're, uh, that they're talking about. Um, ah, Stephen, that's a really good uh, thought as well. Stephen is remembering uh, jesus' words in matthew twenty three uh, in his uh, wonderful, fiery woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, uh, chapter. Um, by the way, that chapter is like one of the reasons I prefer the King James just because it's awesome. I love the rhetoric in that chapter, man. Um, uh, but anyway, he's uh, remembered remember them being compared to whitewashed tombs, um, uh, to whited sepulchers. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Um, Yes, who look fair on the outside, but inwards, uh, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tony says, how would Dante view corrupt popes who declared others to be heretics? Um, well, I mean, if they're declaring people you know, wrongly to be heretics, that's very bad. Um, and I, based on where we see popes, I think it would depend on where, like what his motivation was. If if it's because the pope is himself heretical, he'd be here. We're going to, we see a pope here among the tombs. Um, uh, you know, Dante's going to see a pope. So, so yeah, if, if the pope is himself heretical, then yeah, here, is where he would be if that's what's leading him to declare non heretics heretics. Uh, then it would be here. If there's some other reason, uh, as for instance, money, right? I mean, if uh, uh, if he's you know, if this is part of a uh, part of a money grab on his part, which was not unknown, um, then there's another place where he'll be, and we'll meet a whole gang of popes uh, down there later on. Um, Yeah. Um, Now, Tony asks, why wouldn't Epicurus be counted among Virgil and the other pagans? That's a really, really good question, Tony. And my only answer for this is that he, because his, the teachings of Epicurus are not only, they're not merely a pagan idea. Right? They are he's the founder of a heresy which misleads many Christians, which leads many Christians, to like many of Dante's uh, uh, Florentine contemporaries, apparently. Um, How does that, you know... I don't know. I don't know, Tony. I mean, it seems to me an inconsistency, too. I mean, Epicurus himself was not a heretic in the same way. I mean, he was just a pagan, right? He... Believed things which were wrong, but so did a lot of the pagans that are up in limbo, right? Um, uh, this, you know, what makes his beliefs in that way, you know, different? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um. Let's see. T- David says, "According to Catholic doctrine, what would happen to the souls of those so condemned?" What you mean, like the if there were a heretical pope who were declaring orthodox people heretics? Um. I, again, I, according to the same logic, uh, according to the same logic of what I was saying earlier about like how wh- how he can be condemning popes without condemning the church. Um it basically that same thing would apply i mean you know um, god is perfectly capable of sorting those things out right um he uh he he knows the difference um and uh it, it, you know the misuse of the keys of peter is a much bigger deal for the one who is thus misusing them than for the people who are the victims of the misuse. Um, that's uh, not so big a deal. Um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but David, yeah, I agree. I mean, the charge of St. Peter uh, is is a big issue here. Um, the, But here's one thing that I would say. Popes are not infallible. Popes are not infallible. Um, The doctrine of the. Of infallibility of papal declarations, not all papal declarations by any doctrine, but of, you know, ex cathedra uh, papal declarations is a modern doctrine that's not a medieval doctrine. Um, There was no medieval doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. Um, So just a a lot of people... There are a bunch of things which are actually modern Catholic doctrines, uh, which get... um, yeah, exactly. The 1870s. I think that sounds right to me, Michael. Um, it's only been the last hundred years uh, that that doctrine has been in place. There are, a lot, so said, there are a lot of doctrines like this that are sort of very famous and people think of them as very medieval ideas that have somehow survived into the, you know, into the modern era, which actually were never formalized until the modern era. are uh, several Marian principles uh, as well um, that are like that. Um, for I just to, to I, I I'm not trying to be cryptic I had to mention one of them the doctrine of the ascension of the Virgin, um, so the, idea, the 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 doctrine that Mary did not die but ascended directly into heaven, um, you, you know after Jesus's ascension, um, uh, that's uh, that's an idea that exists in the Middle Ages. It's not like it was invented in the modern era, but it was not official doctrine of the Church uh, until. Again, the last, I forget exactly the date of that one, um, but it was 19th or 20th century, that one as well. Um, and you can see non-heretical, perfectly orthodox uh, medieval treatments of the deathbed of the Virgin Mary, like that many believe that the Virgin Mary died. Um, so the idea, the, the, the just several examples of things like that, um, which are modern ideas. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So, Michael, uh, don't forget. Michael said that Epicurus wasn't even pagan. Yes, he was. By these definitions, when I'm using the word pagan, I'm using the word pagan in the way that the medievals tended to use that word, which just means non Christians, basically, especially historical non Christians. Um, uh, that's that's I'm not. I'm using that word in a very imprecise way understand um so that's uh that's that's so so yeah he was totally a pagan uh by these medieval uh by the medieval terminology um yeah okay the lids dante's concern about them is well not necessarily concern about them escaping um is commenting. No guardian is watching over them. Um, Yet they don't, or they can't, emerge from the tomb. Right? There is only... There's only one field trip that the souls within these tombs are going to go on, uh, and that's the one to go get their bodies and come back and have the tombs sealed behind them. Um... So um, they can't escape. Is this part of their torment that they can see, you know, the way out, but that they, they can't go? It seems to me less like, you know, sort of the less sort of a tantalus situation. That doesn't seem to me quite to fit with what's going on here. At least, and we certainly don't see any evidence that the souls feel that way. That's the main thing that I would say. There, we don't get any any evidence that that a Tantalus style. And for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to, remember Tantalus was the guy uh, in uh, Greek mythology who is punished by. having the the water up to his uh, chin and the fruit hanging down right above him. And when he reaches up, it pulls out of his, and when he tries to drink, it sinks down. So he's always, always has, uh, you know, food and water right near him, but he can never satisfy his thirst or his hunger. Um, That's, of course, where the word tantalize comes from. Um, I don't see a tantalus element in anything that the, uh, that they say, at least not as far as the departure from the tomb, as far as the open tombs are concerned. But I think it might apply in a um, uh, in a I don't know, more metaphysical way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um David says, when Dante addresses Virgil as the highest virtue, which virtue does he mean? Wisdom? I th- I, David, if I had to guess one, I would say wisdom. Um, oh, highest virtue. Um, that is a really interesting thing, to, <laughs> again, under the circumstances. If we have changed our thoughts about Dante Virg- or, or Virgil, Dante apparently has not, right? The Dante pilgrim is still calling him, O oh, highest virtue, right? After uh, our little snafu at the gates of Dees. Um But um, it is also possible, I agree, Tony, that they're trapped in their own self-righteousness. Yes. Um, that it's uh, part of... The, it would fit the pattern that we've seen before. The pattern that we were noticing in the other circles is that sort of the choices that the spiritual choices that people were making in life, the sinful choices that people were making in life, they have been doomed uh, to sort of escalate and repeat um, either deliberately, you know, either sort of directly or more generally symbolically directly in the case of the wrathful who are always beaten on each other. Um, but uh, more indirectly and, you know, with the people rolling stones or tumbling around in the wind Um but um but here too if uh following the heresiarch right if uh if turning away from following Jesus towards um you know the uh the the true life you end up instead following the heretic down into death you are you're 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 locked into that path, right? You can't emerge. You can't, because to do that, that would be well, there would be repentance, quite literally, turning around and going back, right? Leaving the tomb again. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, Serena. Dante is interested in wanting to look in and talk to the shades therein the business about them escaping or them coming out is because he says no guardian is watching over them it could mean therefore I'm not going to get in trouble if I try to talk to them and that certainly might be a part of it um but um i, I think in his i think that at the very his saying Why don't they get out? Uh, It seems to me implied in Virgil's response. They'll all be shuttered up when they return here from Jehoshaphat together. Like, don't worry, the doors are going to be closed eventually. Um, You know, this is going to be made final at that point, at the final perfection. That will be the final perfection of their punishment, just as Dante or as Virgil has already uh, implied about the perfection of other punishments coming after the resurrection of the body. Um, Yeah. Yeah, um, good. Sarah, excellent, uh, is recalling the um, uh, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Um, yes, the, op- the open graves you're thinking of, right, um, as being sort of the, the, the fit symbol in that way. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, anyway, let's meet some of the shades. At this there rose another shade alongside, uncovered to my... So there's this one guy who's yelling at him, right? It turns out to be Farinata. One of the guys that um, uh, Jocko was talking about uh, up in Circle Three. At this there rose another shade alongside, uncovered to my sight down to his chin. I think that he had risen on his knees. He looked around me, just as if he longed to see if I had come with someone else. But then, his expectation spent, he said in tears, If it is your high intellect that lets you journey here through this blind prison, where is my son? Why is he not with you? I answered, My own powers have not brought me. He who awaits me there leads me through here, perhaps to one your Guido did disdain. His words, the nature of his punishment, these had already let me read his name. Therefore, my answer was so fully made. He recognizes this guy, right? He figures out exactly between his words, his reference to his son, his assumption that his son would be along with Dante, was, is Dante's intellectual peer, the nature of his punishment, the fact that he's being punished with the Epicureans. Dante's like, I know this guy is. This must be Cavalcante di Cavalcanti, right? Absolutely. Um, because, of course, his son is Guido. Guido Cavalcante, who was one of the other great poets um, of uh, i don 't know if it 's quite right to say that he was you know uh the sort of the florentine Marlowe to uh to 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 dante 's Shakespeare but he was one of dante 's um, in dante 's poetic circle one of the other famous poets in Florence at the time uh, and you know someone Dante was closely associated with um, so there seems to be and this is his dad, right? The, his, so his friend's dad here. Um, Cavalcante makes the assumption, or at least asks the question, how is it, A, how is it that you're here? And B, why isn't my son not here too, right? If you are here because of your enlightened intellect, because of your high intellect, yeah. Obviously, my son, Guido, shift qualified as well. Right. You are not more qualified than my son, Guido. So. um. So, yeah. So where is he? And Dante's like, no, 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 you misunderstand. My own powers have not brought me. Um, that guy over there, whom he doesn't name, right, doesn't 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 brag on his guide there. He who awaits me there leads me through here. Perhaps to one your Guido did disdain. Um, It's not Virgil who's the issue. It's Beatrice who is the issue. Um, Perhaps to one your Guido did disdain. Um, Guido didn't show proper respect. Um, Arthur says, why does he want his son in hell with him? I think he wants to see... I, I think he understands that Dante's on tour. Um... And he's wondering why his son Guido isn't Dante. I mean, if they're letting Florentine poets in for tours of hell, why didn't Guido get an invite? Stephen is wondering if jumping to erroneous conclusions is a result of being a heretic. I don't know. That might be a chicken and egg question, Stephen, perhaps. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Envious of Dante's privilege is, I think, exactly uh, what it is there, Michael. That's how I would read that as well. Um, And Dante responds by saying, it's, it's, not, it's not about me. I'm not privileged because I was good, right? I'm not here because I am brilliant or because I was a good poet. I'm here because I'm one who was called. Um, perhaps to one your guido did disdain. And I, I've got to think that there's, I don't think I can unpack that line, uh, because I think that there's probably a lot there. Um, that's a line that probably was very, very meaningful to people who were in the know about Dante's poetic circles, right? Um, I think that if that's a diss, Guido would have gotten it, uh, for sure. Um, I don't feel that I do all the way, but I think that he's, uh, because both were love poets, right? And we, you know, Dante's great love, well, it's complicated, but his greatest work of love poetry was the Vita Nuova, the collection of poems in which he, with remarkable cunning, recontextualizes pretty much his whole poetic, uh, Uh, corpus into this whole series of love poems to Beatrice uh, both to Beatrice directly and indirectly Um, it's uh, a really remarkable way to do a greatest hits album uh, by publishing it in this whole big huge personal frame narrative it was uh, really really interesting Um, but anyway again this this uh, You know, Guido's relationship with that and his um, uh, relationship with Beatrice, I'm sure has a lot to do with sort of the reception of that. Um, Let's see, Bruce. Now, it's possible. It is possible to read that the one... Virgil, of course, he's just talked about Virgil, and Virgil is leading him to Beatrice. Beatrice, of course, in turn, is going to lead him to God, right? So ultimately, the one to whom he is being led is God himself. And it is very possible that Guido, like his father, has disdained God himself, right? Um, that Guido has, is a heretic and has left the path just like his father did um uh it seems to me i think it's more likely he's referring to Beatrice, but I'm not sure we necessarily um we necessarily have to have to choose there um yeah and david i'm not sure I certainly don't know enough to uh to judge between. Uh, translators. Uh, David is saying that the Longfellow translation seems to imply that uh, it was Virgil that Guido had in disdain. Possibly. Possibly. Um, What I like to do, David, when I'm confronted by two warring translations um, warring translations that I don't know enough to adjudicate between I have two options. Option number one is if one of those two readings just f- feels like it really doesn't fit so many other things, like other, many other places in which they agree, um, then sometimes I'll I'll side with one over the other on that basis. Um, but unless there's a, a clear sort of pattern here, and I, I, I can't see how I could have any such thing in this case, um, then what I'm left with is saying, well... It seems to be ambiguous, right? I mean, there there are presumably reasons why different translators do this in different ways. Um, Dante's phrasing is, in some sense, ambiguous and perhaps deliberately so. Um, so maybe there is uh, a kind of, not connection exactly, but um, perhaps he is leaving sort of more open-ended the object of Guido's disdain, Um it could be Beatrice, it could be Virgil, and of course, um, as um, Bruce was implying, it could also be God. We are in the circle of the heretics, after all, right? Um, So yeah, exactly. E all of the above. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Steve and I agree. Though the Shades are sepulchred together, uh, they certainly don't seem to have much fellowship or communion together. No, they're not. Uh, they, are, uh, uh, they are a discordant bunch. Again, each tomb is like a little anti-church, right? Um, uh, you know, the little... The teachings leading unto death rather than unto life. And therefore... Not. There is no communion of the saints, right, among the, uh, among the heretics here. Um, okay, now this is. Now, Cavalcante de Cavalcanti sinks down into the tomb, um, and he sinks down, he seems to sink down into the tomb based on Dante's tense, perhaps to one your Guido did disdain. Um, it, it seems likely to be his use of the past tense so that Cavalcante de Cav- Cavalcante, de, de Cavalcante uh, whose name I get tired of saying, um, seems to uh, draw the conclusion from that that his son is dead, right? And he didn't know that, and he's being told that his son is dead. Uh, and, uh, um, and so he sinks down very sad upon hearing this because he apparently didn't know that. Um. so Dante talks to Farinata ah as I hope your seed may yet find peace I asked so may you help me to undo the knot that here has snarled my course of thought it seems if I hear right that you can see beforehand that which time is carrying but you're denied the sight of present things so they can see the future but they can't see the present. We see, even as men who are far-sighted, those things that are remote from us. Sorry, we who are, those things he said that are remote from us. The highest Lord allots us that much light, but when events draw near or are, our minds are useless. We were we are not were we not informed by others. We should know nothing of your human state so you can understand how our awareness will die completely at the moment when the portal of the future has been shut. This is what I meant by this sense, the sort of more metaphysical way in which they are currently living in an open tomb, um, but will be living in a closed tomb later on. Their entire awareness will die completely. They are not aware of the present, right? They will have no more no more knowledge of things. They can only know the future. Um, That this seems to map onto the empty tombs, and that it correlates with the closing of those tombs upon the resurrection of the body, seems to me relatively clear. What the full significance of that is, seems less clear to me. I'm not sure I've really figured that out. Um, Sorry, this is Farinata. Now speaking, um, Florentine guy of a previous generation, just the immediate previous generation, uh, was a big persecutor of Dante's parents, as he Farinata, brags about. Um, also, apparently, an Epicurean, uh, and is therefore down here. One of the guys that Chaco back in uh, uh, back in the what was it, Canto Five. Six, Gento Six, um, in the Third Circle. Um, Promised was down lower. Remember Dante was asking about these famous Florentine guys, uh, and uh, we were told we would meet Farinata later on, and here he is. Um, Stephen, is he speaking of all the shades in hell, or specifically of the heretics? I don't know. It sounds, again, like it seems to me to map very well onto the whole open doors of the tombs thing, right? Um, Just as the tombs will be closed and the souls inside left in the darkness, the burning darkness of the glowing hot tombs uh, for all eternity, um, so too they will be locked away from any knowledge of anything right their awareness will die completely at that moment when the portal of the future has been shut it even uses even uses that metaphor of the closing of the door right so it, it seems to map so so closely um, onto their punishment there that I I have a very difficult time not associating in it with them but I I, I don't know or don't remember if it does say um, whether or not this is true of all of the Shades. The one thing I will say is that he does not seem to be the only one of the Shades who talks about the future. So I wonder um, if uh, Stephen, it's possible that this is something that is generally true of the Shades but spoken of here because it seems it in some way more directly speaks to the condition of the heretics? Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, Now, Leanne asks, why not just let them remember the past? You mean... Okay, I think I see what you mean. That it might seem that if these souls are being punished, thinking back, being forced to think back over their sins, would be the move rather than giving them a vision. Like, why should God give them this vision into the future at all? Right? It's not a question of why should He take it away, uh, but why should He give it to them in the first place? Um, I'm not sure if this is right, Leanne, but here's my impulse about that. My impulse would be to say reflection back on the past is more of a purgatory thing than a hell thing. If you spend all your time reflecting on the past, you might repent. (laughs) I mean, you might, you might see the error of your ways. There's a chance that that could be instructive in a positive way. Um, Instruction is not what's going on down here. Um right I, I hear what you say leanne that uh, in some sense the uh uh the future the knowledge of the future seems a bit gratuitous um like a freebie I agree with you it it does seem a bit like a freebie um certainly something leanne that it would seem that God has gone out of his way to give the souls down here right um and I don't know why exactly, I don't think I can explain that uh why he's done that right off but I would say again um reflection on the past is about repentance and uh you know Solly uh on youtube says why is there no repentance in the afterlife um they can't repent in the afterlife um it's uh it's it's too late hell is a is a, is a, is a steady state system it is it does not change um well, that's not always true. There are changes um there are changes, but the people don't change um and the people don't repent um, yet yeah, possibly tormenting them with a future that they can't share yes, yes um. Right, Leanne is thinking maybe it's a, it's a it's an enhancement of their punishment. Um, right, except you're right, Leanne. The fact that it goes away at the last judgment instead of becoming perfected at the last judgment. Right, that would that seems to be counter to the whole uh, perfection of punishment. Right, that we've seen uh, for the resurrection of the body. Um, uh, Interesting. David says that the knowledge of the future but not of the past or the present is a perversion of the usual course of knowledge. It's exactly the opposite of what we have, right? We can know some of the past, we can know the present, but we can't... Like the future is the one thing we don't have access to, and for these guys it's the only thing they have access to. So we can see another uh, inversion, uh, which at least among the heretics might seem to make some sense, possibly, uh, as David says. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think that the reason they will cease to have knowledge of the future at the resurrection is because... There won't be any future in the way that they see the future after the resurrection. At that time, time will cease uh, in the sort of normal way. Um, yes, I think that's a likely explanation of why the portal of the future will be shut. It's not just that that's the point at which God decides to say, okay, your gift of seeing future is gonna stop. You know, this is the expiration date, but rather there will be nothing else to see. There will be no more future. Just as remember we were talking about this, I think we were talking about this Another, and we were talking about um, things like faith, hope, and love. Um, This is why faith and hope are temporary. Right, because the time will come when there's no question of the future, um love will remain, but faith and hope, both of which are oriented towards that which is unseen and that which is which has not yet happened, um will no longer be yeah yeah um i think I think so, I think so, okay, I'm skipping lots of political stuff, of course, with Farinata. sorry, um here's the end of the canto he moved ahead and as we made our way he said to me why are you so dismayed i satisfied him answering him fully and then that sage exhorted me remember the words that have been spoken here against you now pay attention and he raised his finger when you shall stand before the gentle splendor of one whose gracious eyes see everything then you shall learn from her your lifetime's journey Following that, his steps turned to the left, leaving the wall and moving toward the middle, along a path that strikes into a valley, whose stench as it rose up disgusted us. So Dante is in part referring back—he's he's kind of bummed about his conversation with Farinata. Now, the one thing that is most obviously relevant about Farinata is that Farinata— People are always getting exiled from Florence, right? It's like a, it's a, it's like a pastime. And Dante has, of course, just been banished from uh, Florence. And Farinata, as I said, was an enemy of Dante's parents and made it hard for them to return from exile um, in to Florence. Um, and so, of course. Dante's a little sensitive on the subject of returning from exile to Florence because he's in under exile right now, right? Um, Notice Virgil's exhortation here. Pay attention. When you shall stand before the gentle splendor of one whose gracious eyes see everything, then you shall learn from her your lifetime's journey you will understand the journey of your lifetime, right? And so he's kind of alluding to the whole exile from Florence and are you ever going to return from exile to Florence? Um, But he's putting the concept of Dante's lifetime journey into a bigger context, into a spiritual context, right? You're going to be shown your lifetime's journey. You're going to be led to understand your lifetime's journey. But until then, just um, don't worry about it for now, right? He's not yet equipped to fully understand his lifetime, his life's journey. Um, He is still focused on these other, more material things. And Virgil doesn't have the answers for him, right? Doesn't tell him what's... um, doesn't tell him what's coming. Um, but he tells him that something different is coming, right? That he is going to be, um, uh, it's not that his journey is going to be changed, except it is. But the whole thing is going to be recontextualized for him. Um, Maybe Dante don't maybe allowing yourself to be led to despair or even concern by one of the people in the you know speaking out of the burning hot tombs of the heretics is maybe a bad idea right let's um, let's hold out uh for something else and and yeah Stephen says those in hell can see the future but maybe can't interpret it entirely correctly also very likely and again um. You're going you're gonna to follow along with the declarations of one of the heretics who's, you know, undergoing the torment that's described here? Not sure that seems like a great plan. Um, as again, I think that Virgil is trying to remind him here. Okay. Um, but it reeks, right? I mean, they've come to the edge of another cliff and they're looking down over the lower regions of hell, the final three circles of hell. Seventh, eighth, and ninth circles of hell. And it smells horrible. It smells so bad uh, that they have to hunker down behind one of the tombs and kind of wait for a little while until they get acclimated to the smell, right? And while they do, they have uh, the philosophical conversation which takes up all of Canto 11 um, as they reacclimate. Uh, as they acclimate themselves to the next stages, and Dante is asking questions about what they see. So, um, Virgil's explanations. I'm mostly going to go through these, I hope, fairly quickly, and just kind of do some commentary uh, uh, as, as, as we go here. My son, within this ring of broken rocks, he then began, there are three smaller circles. Like those that you are leaving, they range down. So we've got the three, the three circles are the seventh, eighth, and ninth circle of hell, um, and they uh, they're smaller because, of course, they're inside. We're going concentric here, uh, and they are uh, they they are descend, they, they descend downwards. Those circles are full of cursed spirits, so that your seeing of them may suffice. Learn now the how and why of their confinement. Now, this is a new strategy by Virgil. I'm going to explain everything to you so that you have a context for what you see instead of making you figure it out as you go along, which both Dante and we have had to do to this point, right? So now, before we get to the seventh circle of hell, Dante the poet and Virgil the guide are completely changing their strategy, and they're going to give us, you know, the... uh, the 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 map points, and the overall explanation and rationale before we get down there. Okay. Um, Of every malice that earns hate in heaven, injustice is the end. And each such end, by force or fraud, brings harm to other men. However, fraud is man's peculiar vice. God finds it more displeasing, and therefore the fraudulent are lower, suffering more. Okay, so one thing that is very clear is that all of this is, uh, it's all very logical subcategories. All of these things are connected. What is inside these is all connected with each other, right? What sin are the people in cir- circles seven through nine guilty of? What is the, What is their sin? Big category. What's the biggest category that encompasses the sins of everybody down there? Virgil just said it. What is it? What are they all guilty of? Exactly, Deborah. Malice. Malice. Malice, which, and Michael, you're right, injustice is... Uh, injustice is the end of every malice that earns hate in heaven. right? But ma- so malice. They, malice is what they're guilty of. Okay. Malice. And if there is malice that earns hate in heaven, or if there's sinful malice, leading you to the question, is there malice that does not earn hate in heaven? I don't think so, but anyway, the malice which earns the hate of heaven, its end is injustice. That is the natural consequence, the natural fruit of malice. Right? Now, but there are two different categories. There are two different categories of malice which brings about injustice, right? Two different mechanisms by sort of manifestations of malice. Two different ways in which malice towards others uh, can manifest itself, and those are force and fraud. Force and fraud. If you're malicious, you're either gonna you're either going to uh, attack somebody right with force. Uh, you're either going to be violent against somebody or you're going to defraud that person. So force and fraud are the two subcategories of malice. By the way, we love this kind of thing in the Middle Ages, right? We j- there's a well-taxonomized system is uh, just um, a thing of beauty. We just love that in the Middle Ages. So, okay, malice. Force or fraud. Of those two things, which is worse? Force or Fraud. Fraud is worse. Fraud, why is fraud worse? Fraud is man's peculiar vice. God finds it more displeasing, and therefore the fraudulent are lower, suffering more. So the eighth and ninth circles of hell are the circles of the fraudulent, those whose malice manifests itself in fraud. Those whose malice manifests itself through force are in the seventh circle of hell. Okay. Um, Jennifer says heretics aren't fraudulent. Wonderful question. No. Apparently not. Apparently not. Um, Yeah. The heretics are are not part of the system. They're not guilty of malice. They're not guilty of malice. They're not in circle seven through they're outside it, but inside it. They're inside the gates, right? But they're um uh but they're outside these rings. Um yeah, exactly. They don't do it out of malice. Um they're not attempting to achieve injustice. Um, as Stephen says, heretics believe what they preach, at least. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um Exactly. That's why they're not they they don't seem to be guilty. I mean, they're standing like, you know, among the heretics looking down and he's describing what they haven't been to yet. Um, now, by the way, this introduces an interesting distinction, right? A different way to categorize the um, sins that we've already seen. So I guess not malice. Right? These are the sins of malice. The others are the sins not of malice. Outside the gates of these, lust, not malicious. Gluttony, not malicious. Avarice, not malicious. Wrath, the sullen folks, people beating up on each other and biting each other's faces, not malicious. to think about that one more we're gonna get to soon the circle of the violent against others which is what we see happening full time right I mean there's a continuous brawl violent against each other up in the swamp right how is that different how is that different here How's that different then here? Um, yeah, I wonder, Stephen. Stephen is trying to... Is, is the distinction about, like, not directing at other people, but being about your own passions? You know, when, when your violence says more about you than it says about your thoughts about other people? um of every malice that earns hate in heaven injustice is the end the end like the goal not just the fruit as i said before but the goal um you're attempting to achieve injustice yeah Well, Mudmore, I agree that avarice can be malicious if you're so greedy that that others starve. And, of course, we'll see people actually like that. down And the circle of the violent is not just going to be restricted to people who actually physically beat on other people or kill them. There are other more indirect manifestations of violence against others. Um, but... I mean, there's no question that those who are being punished in the upper circles, other people suffered as a consequence of their sins, right? I mean, that's going to be true, yes, of some of the uh, misers and prodigal, but of the others as well, right? Um, But Stephen, I'm coming back to the point that you were making. It's about the end. Injustice is the end you may be oblivious to the needs of others. Like your miserliness, if you're a miser, right? Your miserliness may lead you to be oblivious to the needs of others. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are trying to harm. Again, you are harming others. It's not like you get a pass for that. I guess presumably one of the reasons that you're in hell. But injustice isn't the end of your action. The money becomes the end in itself. Hey, maybe that's the distinction. It's about the ends, right? Lust, gluttony, avarice, maybe even wrath. These things become an end in themselves to those people, and that's why they end up there. Um, Whereas the people here... There is, Leanne, as you say, the intent to cause harm. Um, Yeah. Now, Jennifer asks, what is the goal of heresy? Well, see, that's difficult. Again, heresy seems to me to be in this really awkward place, right? If you say that these are, you know, you take these things, which are themselves potentially good things, as we said before, right? Um, And you make them an end in themselves and they become distorted and and you end up in hell, right? And then you've got those who use any one, a number of different things towards the end of causing harm to others, right? Of their, you know, uh, uh, the malice of which injustice is the end, the purpose. And then in the middle of that, you've got the heretics, right? Who don't fit into either camp and are kind of weird. Um, yeah yeah um, yeah no it's i have never felt like I've really understood the circle of the heretics because it just it seems to me like a kind of strange sort of um, i don't know <laughs> theological no man's land or moral not theological moral no man's land uh, in the middle of inferno here. Limbo, too, is kind of what it feels like to me, Jennifer. It feels a little bit like limbo and a little bit like the um, the folks outside the gates of hell, right? The uncommitted. Um, but it feels more like limbo to me. Um, I agree with you. It's not limbo. These people are being tormented. Tor- tormented. Um, but, um, uh, yeah... I don't know. As I say, I don't feel like I understand it. But okay, let's uh, let's keep going. So we've got Malice, and then Force and Fraud. Force, Seventh Circle, Fraud, Eighth and Ninth Circle. The Violent, take all of the First Circle. So this is the Seventh, the first of the Three, So uh, you know, Seven through Nine. So the Seventh Circle, Circle the Violent. Uh, malicious, through Force. But since one uses Force against three persons, that circle's built of three divided rings. So we're going to We're going to then subdivide the violent, right? The malicious through force. Great. Okay. There's nothing we love better than a nicely subdivided um, uh, hierarchical system. Okay. Three divided rings. To God and to oneself and to one's neighbor. I mean, to them or what is theirs, one can do violence, as you shall now hear clearly. So those who are malicious by force can be violent against one of their three possible, their three theoretical targets of violence. God, oneself, and one's neighbor. Now, does this put anybody in mind of anything? Anyone? And I'm sorry, I know I'm leaning heavily on people who know the Bible pretty well, and those of you who don't, it's okay, don't feel bad. Uh, But uh, those of you who do know your New Testament, what is this making you think of? Yes, Stephen, mead too. Yes, the greatest commandment, right? Um, uh, the, 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 yes. Uh, what does... Um, Jesus explains at one point how you can boil down all of the law and the prophets, right? Uh, and he says, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Those two commandments contain all of the law and the prophets, he says. Um, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So love for God, love for your neighbor and love for yourself. All right, now you're not there isn't a commandment to love yourself. There's um, a sort of presumption that you're going to love yourself, right? But um, uh, but uh, but but the love of all three of those things uh, is contained um, within uh, these two great commandments, right? Into in, which Jesus boils down, you know, from which, or into which Jesus, no, never mind. You know what I mean? <laughs> those commandments, which are the rendering down of all of all the, the prophets. Um, okay, so love of god self and neighbor so what we can see this provides us now with some context for malice right what is malice why is malice at the bottom because it is the opposite it is the inversion of those things which are the essence of the will of god right the essence of the will of god you want to you want to boil down what is it that god wants from us right what is god's ideal for moral what is the essence of morality what is the essence of the will of god love for god your neighbor and yourself right and so therefore malice against god your neighbor and yourself are the greatest of the sins that's why those three things are at the bottom and the and we see these things specifically set set apart in the seventh circle, the circle of the violent, those who show malice, show malice by force. Um, yes, good. Stephen says the previous sins take something good and raise it up to become an idol. Um, yeah, like like uh, lost a ro- romantic love, or or uh, you know the desires of the flesh, food, and and uh, and money. Yes, uh, these are, sins are actively anti-God. Yes, these are the these are these are the like the open defiance or the opposite of those commandments. Um, yes, and good, uh, Leanne says, if you define love as wishing good for the loved one, then it makes sense that malice, wishing harm, to be at the bottom. Um, and of course, one could say Leanne, as a, a sort of a corollary, right? If um, if the end of malice is injustice, the end of love is justice, right? But anyway, okay. Um uh. Yeah, David says it seems to me odd that you could have malice against God other than through heresy, though I guess we'll see how. Yeah, David, I was trying not to bring that up yet. We're going to get there. But that's another thing that confuses me about the Circle of the Heretics is that it kind of seems to me like at least some of them should kind of fit somewhere else. Like it's, it's yeah, uh, exactly. I have a hard time with that. But anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, okay. All right, and as Stephen says, the heretics are still kind of other from his uh, um, breakdown there. I agree. Okay, all right. So we got got our three rings within the seventh circle. We're still just talking about the seventh circle there. Okay, Uh, so to God, to oneself, and to one's neighbor, I mean to them or what is theirs. One can do violence, as you shall now hear clearly. Violent death and painful wounds may be inflicted on one's neighbor. That's obviously violence against one's neighbor. This possess- his possessions may suffer ruin, fire, and extortion. Thus murderers and those who strike in malice, as well as plunderers and robbers, these in separate ranks, the first ring racks. Okay, so it, this is not just, this is what I meant when I said it's not just literal violence, right? It's not just either killing or beating up people um, that would lead you to the the circle of the violent against your neighbor. Um, if you are violent against them in more, uh, abstract ways, it's still violence. So if you plunder your neighbor, and so this is where, coming back to the point earlier about a miser, right, who takes other people's money and, uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, cackles maliciously as they're let off, uh, you know, or die of starvation or whatever. Um, that that person would be here. He wouldn't be up in the circle of the misers at all, right? Because if he's doing it to get at other people, right, if he is malicious, if his end is injustice, he would be here. Um, not up with those who, as Stephen said, merely made an idol of money um, and ranked it above other things. And then no doubt did bad things to other people. Um, but that wasn't what drove them. Um, I also hope, Stephen, that um, honest burglars are not uh, here in the circle as well. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay, tell us more, Virgil. A man can set violent hands against himself or his belongings. So within the second ring repents, though uselessly, whoever would deny himself your world, gambling away, wasting his patrimony, and weeping where he should instead Be happy. These are the violence against themselves. Now, hang on a second. Wasting your patrimony isn't that prodigality? Shouldn't you be further upstairs? Wait, we'll get there. (laughs) We'll get there. Just, just, let's roll with it for now, right? Um, This is what violent against yourself means. One can be violent against the Godhead, one's heart denying and blaspheming him and scorning nature and the good in her. So with its sign, the smallest ring has sealed both Sodom and Cahors and all of those who speak in passionate contempt of God. So there are three categories of people who are violent against God. the Blasphemers, those who actively uh, speak in passionate contempt of God. Sorry, Tony. Suicides are in the violent against themselves. Absolutely, that's what he was saying. You can set violent hand against yourself. Yeah. So the suicides are there, uh, in and the, with the, they are the uh, they're, they're the poster children of the violent against themselves. But it's not just them. Um, uh, Cahors was a city in France, I think, uh, famous uh, for usury. Bankers lived there, right? So. Blasphemers, sodomites, and usurers. These are the three people, the three groups of people who are violent against God. The blasphemers, the sodomites, and the usurers. Do you have questions? So did Dante. Hang on. Okay now fraud so back to the back to the, so we're working our way back up the hierarchy now right malice force and fraud so we've we've discussed the subdivisions of force now we go back to fraud now fraud that eats away at every conscience is practiced by a man against another who trusts in him or one who has no trust so the two subdivisions of fraud right you can defraud a stranger or you can defraud somebody who trusts you already with whom you already have a relationship of some kind Okay, this latter way that is the one who defrauding somebody who doesn't trust you, right, defrauding strangers, this latter way seems only to cut off the bond of love that nature forges. Nature forges a bond of love among people, right? Like we should naturally love one another. Right. And so if there's another human being that you're defrauding, even if it's a perfect stranger that you've never met before, that's about you're still violating the bond of love. You're still guilty of malice where you should be showing love. Right. But, you know, it's only just the bond of nature. Right. There's no like extra reason that you have to uh, love that person. Thus nestled within the second circle. So this, the eighth circle is the circle of fraud against strangers. But nestled within that second circle, the third circle of the inner three, and thus the ninth circle and lowest circle of hell, um, is the fraud against those who do trust you. But within that second circle, within the eighth circle, the fraud against strangers, he gives examples. This is subdivided in various ways, too. Hypocrisy, flattery, sorcerers, falsifiers, simony and theft. Beraters and panders and like trash. We'll get to all of these folks later on. We'll 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 meet a whole bunch of these different kinds of people. These are all different ways in which you can defraud strangers. Okay, um, but the former way of fraud against those who trust you. Not only the love that nature forges is forgotten but added love that builds a special trust. Thus, in the tightest circle, where there is the universe's center, seat of Dees, all traitors are consumed eternally. Treachery. Betrayal of those who trust you. Fraud against those. That is the deepest and ultimate sin. That is the purest inversion of the core commandments of God. Okay. Um, (laughs) Stephen says, we'll make it that far when hell freezes over. So true. So true. Um, Yes. Sarah, great question about weeping when one should be happy. That was mentioned in the list of people who uh, are, um, um violent against themselves i'm not wanting to i'm skipping a lot here like i'm 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 not going into detail about any of these things because we're being given an overview here we're going to go through each one of these not only each one of these circles but each one of these particular zones and they're all the bottom 3 circles are very organized um, each one is is divided into its special zones, which has clear boundaries. Uh, and we're going to see clear examples of each different subspecies that Virgil is describing here of the different kinds of malice through force and fraud. Um, so I don't want to take a long time. We'll, we'll learn more when we see it. So that's why I'm, I'm kind of uh, being a little bit superficial in my commentary here. We'll get there. We'll get there uh, to see more. And if we don't if when we get there, your questions aren't answered, bring it up again, and we'll have a crack at it then. But I want to wait until we see what we see before we uh, uh, before we kind of talk about it and speculate uh, about it. Um, uh, Jocelyn says, is this sodomites in terms of homosexuality? Yes. Yes. But as we'll see also more than that. Um, none of these sins... Are simple just as the violent against others it doesn't just mean uh you know those guilty of assault right um so to the circle of the sodomites is not just it's not just about homosexuality um but as i say we'll get there we'll get there um Good. Stephen says, is Dece a person or is Seat of Dees something to do with the city? Both. I, the Seat of Dees, I mean, that's where Satan is, right? So um, Satan is, the, you know, Dece is the name of the Lord of the Underworld. Satan is the Lord of the Underworld, except he's also the prisoner there. So Seat of Dees is kind of ironic, right? Seat of Dees, using the, the Greco-Roman name or the Latin name here, um, makes it sound like it's like the throne room of hell. Right, uh, you know, you're gonna come before, which of course happens, right? It happens to, um, uh, to. Oh, what's his face? Blanking. Uh, oh my goodness, what is wrong with me? You know, the guy, the musician, it comes before, um, you know. Best musician, Orpheus. Thank good grief! What is wrong with me? Orpheus. That's what I'm talking about. Orpheus, who appears before the seat of Dis, like in the throne room uh, of Dis and Proserpina uh, in order to play, you know, his uh, his music and and uh, convince them to let his wife go. Um, yeah, yeah. Eurydice. So I can remember her name, but I can't remember his name. What's wrong with me? Um, but. Um, But yeah, the, um, it's the seat of Dice in a very different way, right? This is one thing that the pagans had kind of right, but not quite, uh, not quite. Um, and it's the center of the universe. It's the center of the entire universe. Um, and this is something so many people have misunderstood, um, a lot of people believe that medieval folks believed in a geocentric universe because they thought the world was awesome, super important, right? That in in viewing the world as the center of the universe, that meant they thought that the world was the like most important place that there was that is exactly the opposite of the truth. Um, It is the center, it it is a bad thing to be the center of the universe. The very, very center of the universe is the ninth circle of hell. Satan is at the very, very center of the universe. It is no compliment to be the suburb of Satan, which is what the world is. Um, It is not the center of the universe in the way in which we tend to use that phrase like he thinks he's the center of the universe right Mm. um uh it's not about they thought they were the bottom of the universe uh and in fact those early proponents of the uh heliocentric universe one of the things that they bragged about one of the things that they liked about it is that They were arguing for a heliocentric universe, uh, for a heliocentric worldview, because it promotes Earth. It makes Earth into a heavenly body and not this drainage sink at the bottom of the universe, which is what... So it was not optimism about the world, it was pessimism about the world um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a dark view of the world not a, not a rosy view of the world at all um, that, was, that was kind of connected with the geocentric universe um, okay anyway um, and again this is one of the places where you can see that really clearly, the seat of Dees is at the center of the universe very literally It is very literally the seat of Deus, not his throne, his sit-me-down-upon, which is at the center of the universe, as we'll see later on, from a much more up-close view. (laughs) We'll get a good view of that later on. But anyway, okay. Master, your reasoning is clear indeed, I said. It has made plain for me the nature of this pit and the population in it. But tell me, those the dense marsh holds, or those driven before the wind, or those on whom rain falls, or those who clash with such harsh tongues, why are they not all punished in the city of Flaming Red if God is angry with them? And if he's not, why then are they tormented? He's trying to understand exactly what we've been talking about, right? Okay, so like if... If this is where, like, the bad people are punished, right, why are they being punished? And if they're, like, why does God hate them more, why is he more angry with the people down there than he is with the people up there? He then to me, why does your reason wander so far from its accustomed course, he said, or of what other things are you now thinking? Have you forgotten, then, the words with which your ethics treats of those three dispositions that strike at heaven's will, incontinence and malice and mad bestiality, and how the fault that is the least condemned and least offends God is incontinence? There are multiple ways to offend God. Incontinence is the least of the three. Those up there, the lustful, the gluttonous, the avaricious, they are guilty of incontinence not malice Um, he is of your ethics, capital E the Nicomachean ethics by Aristotle, he's quoting Aristotle here, Virgil is This is the place where Virgil explicitly reveals this, not just this spot, this whole canto, right? Is the place where Virgil explicitly reveals that hell is organized based on Aristotelian principles. Aristotle was right. Right now you might say, again, you might say, why is it that, uh, why would God do that? Why would God arrange, you know, would follow Aristotle instead of, you know, following the doctrines of the church, right? And give us the seven deadly sins or something like that. Um, Again, it's not, um, it's, God's not following Aristotle, right? God, hell was here prior to Aristotle, in fact, right? Aristotle didn't invent this. The ethics aren't something, if, if Aristotle is right, which of course Virgil is telling us he was, if Aristotle is right, it is because he correctly perceived reality. And that uh, the reality which predated him, Aristotle. Right. he didn't invent this. This isn't the Aristotelian system. It's just that Aristotle's system got this part right. And of course he did. He's the philosopher. Didn't you see everybody hanging out with him? Right? He was the coolest philosopher in limbo. right? And he was a pagan. so he's in limbo, right? But, um, but yeah, he figured this stuff out. right? So it's not at all surprising. What should be surprising about it? Is it surprising that Aristotle? could see truth? Why should that be surprising? He's one of the ancients. Right? He's the greatest philosopher of all time, who lived way back in the day when like there were philo- like real philosophers around, right? Not like modern people who are not nearly so smart as the ancient people, right? So of course he figured it out. Who else is going to figure it out? Right? Um Yeah. So In Dante's mind, in the medieval mind, there's no, there's no conflict here. It's not even, there's not even any real reason why it should be surprising to discover that Aristotle had it right. I mean, lots of people already suspected that Aristotle had this right. Um, Three dispositions that strike at heaven's will, incontinence, malice, and mad bestiality. Incontinence, I understand. And that would seem to encompass all those other people we were talking about, right? From the lustful down through Filippo Argenti and the other people beating on each other in the swamp, right? Incontinence, yes. Lack of self-control. A disproportionate focus on, or Stephen, to use your uh, biblical phrasing, making an idol out of worldly things. Yeah, incontinence. Malice has already been explained to us, right? That I now understand, too. Mad bestiality? Don't understand that. I don't. I don't get that. Nor do I see where it fits. Um, Stephen, yeah, uh, d- I'm thinking the same thing. Is heresy mad bestiality? Then that's uh, that's the third category, the one that doesn't seem to be either, you know, to fit in either with the malicious or with the incontinent up above. Uh, it doesn't seem a great description. I got to tell you, right? I mean, Cavalcante di Cavalcanti. Had some issues, but he didn't. Mad bestiality didn't exactly seem to fit. Now I agree, David. Aristotle would have had no concept of heresy. It does not fit at all in the Aristotelian system. Um, Yeah, absolutely. It would have been one of those things uh, that was like not revealed to him. Um, Mad bestiality. Insanity and beastliness are the two components of that phrase, right? I do not believe he means bestiality in the sense of love of beasts or sexual desire for beasts. I believe he means beastliness, being like a beast in an insane kind of way. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't understand the mad bestiality. And, yeah, Jennifer, it's a little hard uh, to think of either the Epicureans or the Stoics, frankly, uh, as mad beasts uh, in this way. Yes. Um. <laughs> so Stephen says, I'm still not Googling that term to find out. <laughs> Yes. Make sure a safe search is on before you Google that term. That's a good piece of advice there. Um, Yeah. Um, Could mad bestiality mean those who are consumed by their own wrath, David? Um, Yeah. I mean, so like. Filippo Argenti, could the line between incontinence and mad bestiality stop at the avaricious, right? And so when we get into the swamp, that the swamp is the swamp of mad bestiality, and and those folks who are insanely pounding and devouring each other and themselves, I mean, that looked a little bit mad. Filippo Argenti, turning his teeth upon his own body, seemed a little mad, right? Not going to not gonna say that doesn't seem to fit. Um, yeah, Bruce and Jennifer are both remembering Nebuchadnezzar. Now Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter Daniel chapter four. So there's a bunch of famous stories in the first four chapters of Daniel. Daniel chapter four is the least famous of these stories, isn't it? Four. Am I remembering that rightly? Anyway, I might have the chapter wrong. But anyway, he turns into an animal, kind of, or he's driven mad. Um, it's, I think I'm right. I think it is four. Anyway, sorry, I'm all like, tempted to look it up, but I'm not going to. Um, uh, he denies God and, uh, uh, and is driven insane, and he runs out in the fields, uh, insane, living like an animal, uh, until sanity is restored to him and he comes back um, and realizes the error of his ways. Um, it's a, It's a second dream. He has the one really famous dream about the statue. We'll get there. Uh, we'll be talking about that soon. Um, uh, that's in hell. We're going to meet that one. The statue from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I mean. Um, this is his second dream. His second less famous dream. Ah, I was right. Chapter 4. Nice. Nailed it. Um, Anyway, okay, so... uh, You're right, madness and bestiality are associated together in that dream, but I don't see anything in hell that's like that exactly. Um, I also want to go back for a second to the distinction that Virgil made between force and fraud. Why is fraud worse than force? Why is it in fact worse to defraud somebody uh, than to kill them? I mean, think about that. Lying is worse than murder by that measure. Why? Well, Virgil explained that fraud was the distinctly human vice. In the sense animals don't do it, right? Right? Mad bestiality is bad because it's not how people are supposed to be, but it's not as bad as malice because animals aren't malicious, right? I mean, it's animals don't do that. When humans act like beasts, that's bad. But when they do things that are so bad that animals are never guilty of them. Right? The kinds of injustice that malice, but specifically fraud. Animals are guilty of violence. Right? Not for the sake of injustice, necessarily. Right? But again, you can still at least say with the people who are malicious by force, they're at least in externally still kind of acting like animals. Right? And we'll come back to this next time. But but the, the fraudulent are transcending any evil or apparent evil of which animals are are capable. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> David says he disagrees. Cats are definitely malicious. <laughs> well, I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um. Yes, yes, Devorah is right. Uh, uh, that in um, though I think, I think it's Hazel's speech that you're remembering in Watership Down, Devora, talking to Woundwort, uh, and saying that you know rabbits don't act like humans, right? They have animality. No, it's Strawberry. In Strawberry's original speech, doesn't, isn't he the one who talks about animality, right, uh, as a good thing? Like, it's better than, like, having humanity, right? Because humans act really badly. Um, yes, that is exactly the thing, Devorah. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the thing. Um, and it's connected, of course, to the final appeal that, uh, that Hazel makes to, to, to Woundwort, but I think the actual phrase that you're remembering is from the account of Strawberry's speech before Woundwort and the council uh, when, the, when they arrive in Ephrath uh, at the beginning there. Um, yes, but that's exactly it, Devora. That's exactly it. Animals have animality. They don't resort uh, to the kind... They don't act like humans do in this way. Um, okay. We're going to stop here. Um, I hated, I was late starting and I hated to break off Virgil's analysis of the lower circles of hell in the middle. Uh, but we'll continue. We're, we're we're almost done here with uh, Canto Eleven. We've got a few more things to be explained to us. Virgil is going to bring up, or sorry, Dante is going to bring up a particular query about one of the things that he doesn't get why it's in malice at all. Um, uh, so we'll get there. He's going to ask about usury, which confuses him. Why are bankers down here? specifically um, uh, not I think that he has a hard time believing that bankers would go to hell but why should they go to that part of hell doesn't seem to make much sense to him so he wants to ask about that um, um, so we'll, 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 we'll do that and then of course we will descend into the seventh circle of hell and start meeting the violence the violent against their neighbors um, all right Thanks, everybody. Uh, Thanks for joining me again. Good to be back, and I will see you guys next week. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.